All right. Uh, we are starting um, the fourth session of our apologetics, and today we're going to talk about the resurrection. Um, I need to get after it because I went long when I was going through this before, so we're going to try and clip through at least the beginning part of this pretty quickly. Um, this is generally tied into, and we talk about the resurrection, is generally tied into the problem of miracles. And so it is kind of the thing that we need to start off with. Um, we talked last time, like, if there's God, then really we shouldn't have any problem with miracles. But that tends to not always be completely true. Um, so there have been Enlightenment scholars uh, back in the 1700s when the Enlightenment was really, really going, um, and deists uh, who kind of rejected the fact that we even needed them. This started with somebody named Heinrich Paulus. All these guys are going to be German, um, but then they, that German scholarship bled over into everything else. He basically thought that um, the teaching of Jesus was all that really matters. Like, what we need is Jesus to tell us the right way to organize society and the right way to organize life, but the miracles are not important. Because the miracles can't confirm or deny any of his teaching, it just doesn't matter. Um, David Strauss came along and then said, not only are miracles not needed, uh, but that it's all myth. That these ancient peoples didn't know what they were seeing, didn't know how to talk in an enlightened way about it, and therefore they made up these myths to try and explain what was going on. At the same time, there were philosophical problems being brought forward. Um, Spinoza uh, basically argued exactly the opposite of what I argued last week. I said, if there's God, then, then miracles aren't an issue. Um, Spinoza says, because God has shown himself to work in this very regular pattern, um, and because there's no imperfection with him, and because he is sort of interconnected with nature, that any sort of miracle goes against the very nature of God, which is weird. So basically he's saying, if, if there is a God, then there can't be miracles, which is a weird thing to argue. But nevertheless, um, he's wrong, don't worry. Uh, and, and David Hume makes an actually, this is probably the most famous argument against miracles. David Hume says, listen, we've lived the vast majority of our lives and, and we don't see miracles. They just don't happen. And so even if there was a report of a miracle and we could believe it with 100% certainty, we have all of the weight of all of our lives on the other side of that scale. Right? So you've got the report of a miracle, which you believe, and there's good reason to believe. He says, but you've got the evidence of the rest of your life that miracles just don't happen. And, and so the scales never tip in favor of miracles. And as a matter of fact, you never have perfect proof of miracles. And so the scale is actually never tipped in the direction of miracles. He would say that in order to believe in a miracle, it would be a miracle for it to not have happened. Okay? Um, which, again, is a weird way to put it, but that's what he basically argues. So those are some of the, the philosophical problems that, that are there, too. The question is, um, if we need them, and we seem to, the assumptions of people like Paulus and Strauss are, are that people from back in the day were just stupid, right? That they couldn't understand the things that they were seeing. They make them sound like, like they didn't know how the natural world worked, right? Like they're seeing things and they can't comprehend it. And so they, they've got to write these things in myth. Or from Paulus' standpoint, he explained away all of the miracles as natural occurrences. So Jesus was walking on like wooden planks when he was walking on the water. And uh, the feeding of the 5,000 was, was people saw the generosity of this boy and then decided that they were going to kick it in. So he was basically just saying that these people were all deceived and this is stupid. But I mean, it seems 
it seems like they're just talking down to people, right? They were duped. They, Jesus potentially was deceiving people into thinking he was a miracle worker. Um, they duped other people into believing that these miracles had happened, or they're just completely ignorant. I hate stuff like this. People, people back in ancient days were not stupid. They weren't. I just, I, I don't think that enlightenment, enlightenment people just think that they were better. Honestly, they just, all of them believe that they're better than everybody else. Like they just, they've finally come to the place of the truth and everyone who doesn't see a, a, along their lines is stupid or ignorant and it's just not the case. They're the ones who are stupid and ignorant. Um, so we can get rid of that. And, and basically when we ask, do we need them? I, I mean, Paul makes it pretty clear yeah, you, you need them. You, you've got to have miracles. The resurrection, I mean, he, this is one of the most sustained arguments that Paul gives anywhere for anything. The 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians is all about the necessity of the resurrection. He says, listen, if there's no resurrection, there's a liquor store down the street. Go buy some schnapps and have a good time because honestly, the rest of your life is all you get, and then there's judgment because you're still in your sins. Nothing has changed. There is no hope for you. And so he, he puts everything on the resurrection of Jesus. And if Paul emphatically says this, I'm, basically, the Corinthians were where the, the German enlightened scholars were going to get to in saying, we don't need the resurrection. Philosophical problems have been handled for a long time. Um, the The best answer to this was given by a guy named Thomas Sherlock. I don't think that this is the same guy who Sherlock Holmes is named after because that'd be ironic because um, Sherlock Holmes was like an atheist drug addict, but um, although brilliant. Uh, Thomas Sherlock answered in like 1792 Hume's arguments, which have been kind of laid to waste since then, but um, Sherlock basically said two things. There's no reason um, a priori means before you even see the evidence of a miracle. What Hume is trying to do is say, before we ever even look at evidence for a miracle, we can, we can dispense with it. We don't, it doesn't matter. No, no amount of evidence can ever work. It doesn't matter. We can just get rid of it. And he says, there's actually no reason to think that they can't happen. And he gives two points of this. The first is, if we just judge things based on what we know, then others would be justified in denying a lot of things. Okay. And immediately what came to mind when I was reading this week is Roger and Hammerstein's The King and I. Now, my mom forced me to watch this when I was a child. Um, my psychologist says I'll get over it sooner or later. Uh, but this is The King of Siam, and he has brought in an English tutor to, to teach his court, basically. And um, I recall this scene pretty vividly because it was... Being, living in Michigan, it was funny to me. She's explaining to them snow. And everyone in the court is like, you're a moron. Water doesn't do that. And we know water doesn't do that. And basically, that's exactly what Hume is saying. Hume is saying that, no, she is wrong and he is right because everything in his life has shown him that water doesn't do this. They have cold days. There are days when it gets down to like 65 in the morning and he's been cold. He's gone out and he's shivered and water is still just water, right? And so if we're just judging based on our own, what we have experienced in the past, then there is a lot of things that are true that we would deny, and so he says that that's just not the same. And he also says something else. The proof itself is not amazing. 
He says, we, we, can, we can just kind of pin down with this. The proof is like everyday proof. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I was dead and now I'm alive. If he's alive standing before you, he said, we check to see if people have died all the time. It's no different than finding out that somebody else has died. You just go and talk to people. You can prove, if, if you wanted to know if somebody is dead, you can prove to yourself that they died. There's enough proof out there. And likewise, if you knew that somebody was dead and somebody reports to you that, well, now he's alive, he says, those proofs are really easy as well. We, we do this all the time, tracking down people to see if they're alive, to see if they're walking among us. And so he says, the proof isn't really spectacular. The proof is like everyday type stuff. It's the conclusion that is striking. And so um, he says, there's really nothing about miracles that is above proof. This is really easy proof. And so uh, basically Hume is wrong. So why do people purport to see or experience miracles? Why, why do people say, I saw a miracle or I had this miracle happen to me? Why do they do it? Good reasons and bad reasons. Okay, so they, for fame or for, like, they want the notoriety of it. That's right. What else? I would say kind of connected to that, the idea that they are special or that God sees them. Mm-hmm. Right, and that the modern version of of that kind of thing is like, I went to heaven for 40 minutes or whatever, and then I, yeah, yeah, yeah. their own like little resurrection or whatever. Any other reasons? Okay, that's good, that's good. Yeah, it could could be, and we're we're missing the obvious bit. It could be that it just actually happened, right? So there's that as well. Um, I think there's basically one, because it happened. Two, because they were deceived. They, they thought that they saw a miracle, but they didn't actually see a miracle, right? So there are people um, who see Jesus' face in a, like a piece of toast, right? And you're like, maybe not so much of a miracle, maybe just kind of a coincidence, and you're kind of projecting. Um, Maybe you were deceived into thinking it's a miracle. And I'm not sure that even if you saw his face in a piece of toast that we would want to consider that a miracle. Um, <laughs> Meredith, you got to stop. you got to stop. That's, that's, that's so good. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't even mean to set her up like that. I should have known better. That's, that's on me, folks. That's on me. I, I know. I know the people I'm dealing with. Um, or because they profit somehow, right? They, they get notoriety from it or they become rich off of it. And people have become very, very rich off these kind of things, right? So that's Benny Hinn. And look at, look at that man. That is a man who ought to know how to swing a golf club right there. That is great form. Not only him, but the guy who's fallen backwards. All of it, just great form. So we, we look at hucksters like him and we say, he's doing it for a profit, right? They're deceiving people because they're getting something out of it. And so the question becomes, what fits the New Testament evidence? right? If, if the New Testament, and specifically not just about Jesus's general miracles, but about the resurrection, is it because they happened? Is it because they were deceived? Or did they have a reason to deceive others? Those are basically what the three options come down to, okay? Either the event actually happened, the apostles and those who witnessed, at least said that they witnessed the resurrection, were deceived that they they didn't actually see the resurrection or were deceived that he was dead is one of the options as well. Like he didn't actually die um, or they profited somehow, okay? 
If deceived, it would be on an incredible scale heretofore unknown, right? So Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, there's what? First to the apostles and the, you know, as, as he goes down that list, not only he skips over the women that, that uh, Jesus appeared to, first Mary Magdalene, which we'll come back to, but then to the prophets, then to 500 people. And so we are dealing with like a mass amount of people being confused. And here's another point. So in scholarship, scholars want to deny a number of the books that we would ascribe to Paul as belonging to Paul. You know what book they never do that for? No one in their right mind thinks that 1 Corinthians wasn't written by the Apostle Paul. No one. Like, you could find the most liberal scholar who, who is a biblical scholar, and not a one of them will deny that Paul wrote it. So in Paul's lifetime, he's saying 500 people have seen it, and you can go talk to them. Most of them are still alive. And the point of saying that is, go, go check. Go, go find these people. They're out there. They will tell you that they saw them. So there's a, this huge, undeniable, mass thing that must have happened if they were all deceived. Now, these things can happen. Basically, what you're talking about is a mass hallucination or psychosis. Things like this have happened before, but they take different forms. So there is something called mass um, psychogenic illnesses, and these are illnesses where you have people believing that they're going to get sick and then getting sick in that manner. And it can happen over social media. It's been shown to happen because kids have linked to stuff on their, their Instagram account. It happened all the time in the Middle Ages with something that is um, very odd. So not the Middle Ages so much, but from the, the 14th century through the 18th century, at random times throughout Europe, people would start to dance uncontrollably. And they, they wouldn't stop sometimes until, as reports have it, they would pass out or die. Okay? And sometimes this would take up like hundreds of people and they would just start doing it. Um, and it's not like they had sick beats or anything going on. I think they just, they just did it. Sometimes there wasn't even music involved. Okay? Um, and so this is, called, this is called psychogenic illnesses. But it's different. Those things are different. We, we can track those things. Those things happen everywhere. They happen fairly regularly. We've, we've got proof of them happening. But you'll notice something about all of them. They all have like physical appearances. People start running fevers. They get rashes. They, they move their bodies uncontrollably. The point is they're not strictly mental and they're never hallucinations. We have no evidence of mass hallucinations anywhere. And moreover, not only do we not have evidence of mass hallucinations everywhere, the hallucinations that have to happen in, in seeing Jesus resurrected are really specific they're varied. They're not all at one place and at one time. They're kind of scattered around. Paul saw it at a different time than the apostles. The apostles even saw them at different times. Thomas didn't see it with the rest of the people, right? And so them being deceived to think that Jesus was raised from the grave seems incredibly far-fetched. Like, it, it, it's the weakest thing you could possibly say, that, that they all hallucinated or something like that. Maybe, though, he wasn't truly dead, Okay. First of all, um, not being truly dead is a real stretch as well. Roman people are not today so much. Maybe this is true today. But Roman people back in the day, and especially Roman guards who carry around spears, are really good at killing people and telling when people are dead. They've been around dead people, right? They're like the kid who says, 
I see dead people. But they see them all the time because they're the ones killing them. So they know how to spot a dead person. Their job is to pull dead people off of crosses, to pull someone down who was dead, who they thought was dead, who wasn't dead, bad news for them, very bad news for them. So first of all, Roman people know what dead people look like. And certainly, just generally, people back then knew what death looked like better than we know what death look like, looks like today. We just don't experience it. But on top of that, let's work through, let's work through what has to happen here. Jesus is crucified for a day. He is bleeding out. He can barely breathe. His legs aren't broken, but he is pierced in the side after being beaten within an inch of his life already. They take him down, but he's not dead somehow. They put him in a tomb, but he doesn't receive any medical care. They come and find the tomb empty, and people are like, oh, this is the Lord of life. Now, imagine what that bloke looks like. Like, he's not looking like the Lord of life. This isn't the guy here saying, hey, this is, what the new, this is what resurrection life looks like. If that's what resurrection life looks like, you don't want any part of it, right? Because that man's not going to be functioning on all cylinders. He, he, he's, not, he's not somebody you're going to be bowing down to and worshiping. He's not somebody you're going to be listening to. Um, so the idea of him not being truly dead, of him just swooning or passing out or something like that, that it just doesn't hold water. Again, not only would they have not been deceived by that, but you're basically coming back to the idea that they must have been deceiving other people. They must have known what they were doing. Um, So the other thing is profit, right? Maybe they're profiting from this somehow. Maybe they're getting something out of it that otherwise they, they wouldn't have done. Why would the disciples have done this? So here are the disciples. We have an actual living photo of them. And, um, and, uh, Jesus with his purple robe. That's very nice. Uh, so why would the disciples have lied? Well, um, they need to save face, right? They've, they've, they've said that Jesus was the Messiah. They've gone around. They've been talking to people about him being the Messiah. They've, they've witnessed to others about him being the Messiah. They've, they've sunk three years of their life into him. There's a sunk cost there. They're never going to get that time back. Maybe they're just like, hey, you know, if we just keep if we just keep telling ourselves this, we'll believe it. If we just keep telling other people, they'll buy into it, and, and it will make our lives worthwhile. Um, there doesn't seem to be any, like, real profit in it. Like, none of the apostles lived to be wealthy. Like, maybe it's just them trying to not seem stupid or foolish. I, I really can't think of it. Maybe you can think of other reasons why they would lie about it. I can't think of too many because there wasn't any worldly advantage. Maybe they thought that there would be worldly advantage, Maybe they were that dumb, but it doesn't seem like they, none of them gave up the ghost, by the way. So that's the other thing. Even if they were like, hey, you know, step one, deny that he, he's, he's dead. Step two, proclaim the resurrection. Step three, something. Step four, profit, right? And when step four doesn't happen, to have no one recant on it and to go around and being like, no, nah, I'm serious. We were just lying the whole time. Like, the Jews would have hit on that immediately and would have published that information, but that didn't happen. But then, even if that's true, we got to deal with this guy, who, as you all know by his picture, is the Apostle Paul. And Paul uh, had a pretty good life. Um, he had good standing amongst the Jews. He had really good heritage. Uh, he had a, a strong family line through the tribe of Benjamin. He had a fantastic reputation amongst the people. He certainly was zealous 
Um, he was taught by the best people, and those best people also gave him incredibly good contacts. And his future was very bright. He was really on the, the fast track to leadership within the nation, uh, clearly a brilliant guy. So there's every reason to think that, that he had a lot going in his life. On top of that, he had protection from the Romans. He was a Roman citizen, so he had a foot in both places where he was going to be okay. And on top of that even more, he was disliked by Christians because of all that murder and imprisonment stuff, okay? So if there was anyone in the first century who would want nothing to do with Jesus and nothing to do with him, especially post-resurrection, it would be this guy. And so you have one of two things. Either he... He was deceived and he hallucinated that he saw the risen Christ, which has to be the greatest coincidence that has ever coincided, right? So the, the one guy who is most vociferously against the resurrection of Jesus and against Christianity is the guy who hallucinates that he saw Jesus before him. That is quite the coincidence. Or he made it up, Okay. So what does he profit by making it up? What does he gain by making up the fact that Jesus has been resurrected? Well, he's rejected by his people. Uh, he no longer has any standing among the Jews. He's given away his former life, and he gains nothing from that. Five times he receives 39 lashes. Three times he's beaten with rods. He's stoned. This goes through three different shipwrecks. He's adrift at sea. He's often journeying. He's seeing the world, but not in a good way. Journeying back then was incredibly hard and long and arduous. It wasn't something that people liked to do because it was dangerous. Um, and because of that, he's in danger from crossing the sea. He's in danger from robbers and snakes, from people he upset, from people who just didn't like him. He's in danger from hunger and thirst. He's exposed and he's cold. And this is, this is at a point in his life where he's still got decades of this to go. He's not done with it here. This is all from one chapter in 2 Corinthians. And so his, his whole point is, like, there's no profit in this for him. All the profit was on the other side. All the profit is on denying that Jesus was resurrected. There is no worldly profit for him here. There's none. There's nothing for him. So we would say that he, you know, chose poorly. So there's no reason, there's, there's no evident reason why anyone in the New Testament would have made up the resurrection of Jesus. You, I just, I've never heard a cogent reason why that would be. So you're, you're relying on one of two things. Either they are going through the most timely mass hallucination in the history of the world, or they're all so stupid they'd be willing to give away their lives for a lie. So as Chuck Colson put it, people will lie for something that they believe is the truth. Rarely will they lie and give up their lives for something that they know to be false, okay? So you might, you might lie to gain, and you might sacrifice for something you think is true, even if it turns out to be false. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people lying and sacrificing for something that they know to be false. And he's like, I don't know that that happens. It never happens, especially not to this level. All right. So in the end, it's hard to imagine that they were any of the above. Thus, the resurrection is true and good. Okay? And there's other evidence that we would give uh, for the evidence of the, the resurrection. First, it's ubiquitous in the New Testament. Um, every gospel focuses on the death of Jesus Christ, his trial, the last week. So there's three years of his life 
Luke gives a little bit to earlier stages in his life, but basically three years of ministry that, that the majority of the Gospels take up. But then somewhere between 25 and 30% of almost every single Gospel is devoted to one week of Jesus' life, which is focused on one day of Jesus' life when he comes up out of the grave. It's clear that the Gospels build toward that. It's clear that Paul thought that this was the central facet of all New Testament revelation. The fact that Jesus was alive was the center of everything for Paul. Nothing else mattered. As, as you can go read in 1 Corinthians 11 or uh, 15, and then you can, you can take that idea and put it everywhere in his writings. If Jesus didn't get up out of the tomb, then there's no reason for him to be around. Uh, there's no reason for Paul to be doing anything that he's doing. So um, all the way back to things like First and Second Peter and obviously the book of Re- Revelation, across the New Testament, it's ubiquitous. It, every single person seems to be mentioning. James is the exception. James doesn't talk about the resurrection at all, but we can understand that. The rest of the books almost all talk about it. Secondly, they don't pass us off like it's uh, something that happened, Right? If, if, for whatever reason, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had getting, gotten rid of the feeding of the 5,000, so that's a miracle that's mentioned in all of them, if they came around and said, it's, it's not that important, we don't need to keep it in here, we would lose a lot of good from that, but we wouldn't lose anything central to the claims of the New Testament. But that's not true with the resurrection, The resurrection is the foundation of everything that happens in the New Testament. And so people were, this wasn't just something that they said on the side had to happen, but they were banking everything on this, right? And so again, it's not like they were just trying to up Jesus's reputation. They were making the vastly different claim, not just that Jesus was great, look at he was even resurrected, but they're saying, this is the only thing that matters. If anything matters, this matters, and it's the resurrection. Uh, John's uniqueness is actually important here. Scholars like Paulus and Strauss might say that um, they were trying to use myth to explain what happened. You've got people who will claim that the resurrection of Jesus is just talking about how we can all be made new again through faith or some junk like that. But the interesting bit is that John actually did have two separate books. He has a gospel, and then he's got the book of Revelation. And he did talk in very highly metaphorical, symbolic terms in one of them, and he doesn't in another. And it's quite clear that he is capable of using symbolism, but that in the book of John and in his gospel, he doesn't do that. And people have started to note how historically important the, the book of John actually is. Uh, fourth, the unchecked tomb. We have we have a tomb, right? And immediately, Christians began to say, hey, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And you know what no one did? No one was able to go back to the tomb and be like, here's his body. And the Jews knew. They had heard him say that he was going to be resurrected. The Gospels point this out. And they're not able to produce a body. They're not able to say, no, you see, his body's right here. You can see it. They don't do that kind of thing. The fact that uh, we have no evidence of them even going to the tomb is is you know, kind of proof that he wasn't there. Um, appearances, again, he made, he made plenty of appearances, varied appearances to varied people, um, all of them kind of saying the same basic thing. We'll get to eyewitness stuff here in a minute, but everything basically checks out that these appearances were, were of valid, um, valid eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Um, just talking about the other disciples for a second. 
um, again, I, I kind of said that the only reason why I can really imagine the disciples doing this and not turning around is because they were trying to save face or maybe they thought that they would profit at some point in time. But one of the problems you get to with them saving face is that the documents that are eventually released in the lifetime of many of the apostles is not terribly good to them, right? So we, we talk about Peter and say, well, Peter has the sunk cost. He's put three years of his life into this, and he, he's been the leading guy who's been talking about the fact that Jesus has been resurrected. And, but he's the one who's denying Jesus. He, he's, he's written about poorly, and, and, and they, they sort of fumble their way through every gospel. They, they're misunderstanding. They're not catching up on things. They, they are still prideful and arrogant. And if the disciples were, were basically upholding Jesus so that they could look better, one wonders why they would allow the writings of the New Testament make them look so bad. And again, I just don't, I don't think that it's true. They weren't just trying to save face for themselves. They were trying to demonstrate the goodness of Jesus Christ. And then there is the Old Testament. Now, this is a bit tricky, and I, I want to argue for this, and I, I think I would argue for it a little bit differently if we had more time. What we need the Old Testament to do is to hit the Goldilocks spot, okay? So what we don't want is for this explanation of the resurrection to be something that's completely and utterly out of left field, okay? So that makes it seem like they're just trying to manufacture something for Jesus that was completely and utterly unexpected in order to explain something, okay? So we need some evidence from the Old Testament that says this should have been expected. But we also can't have too much, because if we have too much evidence from the Old Testament, then it seems like they were just fitting things back to the facts, and people just kind of missed it, right? There, there's, no one was, was actually expecting this to happen, even after Jesus walked around saying, hey, this is going to happen. And what we find is the Old Testament has a lot of this really kind of sweet spot when it comes to the resurrection, um, that it seems to speak to it, but not enough to make it, make it overly um, clear. And so we have things like um, a general resurrection that's talked about in the Old Testament, things like Ezekiel 37, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. It's not symbolic, this is really kind of literal language, oh my people. There's Daniel 12. Um, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's this idea of general resurrection, Psalm 22. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. So there will be a day when all will bow the knee before the Lord. He will resurrect them from the dead. So there's this picture in several places in the Old Testament of of a general resurrection of all people. But then, uh, and Job, sorry, getting ahead of myself. Um, Job Job is actually really funny because Job has this very particular question in Job 17. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that is the place of the dead, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed. 
that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. He's like, going through this, this difficulty from God, he says, could you not just kind of kill me, get that over with, and, and when all of this trouble that would have come to me is finally over and past, then you can bring me back out and I'd be happy to serve you. Okay, so his hope is in the resurrection, which he then affirms in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Um, he will see him for himself and he will not see another. Uh, so the idea of this general resurrection is there, but there's also this idea of, of an individual sort of resurrection. Um, Isaiah 53, probably the most poignant prophecy about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We often use it for the crucifixion, but it also very clearly seems to point at his resurrection as well. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, clearly dead, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth." Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. So already we've got this very firm idea that, that whoever the suffering servant is, it's clear that he is going to die. There's, there's really no ambiguity. He is going to die. Yet at the same time, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, which is, seems to be in his death, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, that's got to be talking about his death, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. Now, again, this is how language works. The cause comes before the effect, all right? So if the cause is him pouring out his soul to death and the effect is him sharing the spoil with the strong, the dead don't share spoil. It is the living who share spoil. And so he's saying he's going to live and be rewarded because he died and because he died for the death or he died the death for other people. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Again, dead people don't intercede for others. So Isaiah 53 seems to imply that the suffering servant who was to die in a death that sounds, frankly, I mean, we're not stretching the truth. It sounds a lot like a crucifixion that he was to be raised up from the grave again. Psalm 1610, something that Peter uses in um, his first sermon in the New Testament uh, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, there's something important about this. Notice the personal bit of David's psalm here. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. But then he turns to this very impersonal. He doesn't say, nor let me see corruption. That's not what he says. He says, let your Holy One see corruption. And the New Testament, Peter pounces on that and says, you know, David, he's right over there, and he's really corrupted. His body is gone. It's, it's not there anymore. It's, if worms got to him, worm-eaten, he's disintegrated. But Jesus isn't. Jesus is risen from the dead. On top of that, there's a lot of literary resurrection type of thing. So this is those, those places that 
you can sort of see a resurrection, but you've got to read carefully to get it. The best one is Genesis 22, um, where Abraham is going to slaughter Isaac, and, um, and he takes them up to Mount Moriah, and he lays him on the, the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reaches out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I now know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And that only bit is important because what Genesis starts with in Genesis 22 is take your son, your beloved son, your only son. And the idea that he is the only son is important. He is the son of promise. What Abraham was not promised was generally God is going to give you offspring in the number of the stars of the sky, no matter what happens. That promise was sealed and finalized in Isaac, okay? So you shouldn't look at the promise and think that the promise doesn't have to run through Isaac. Genesis is really clear before Genesis 22. That promise, in order for God to be true, has to run through Isaac. And God has now told Abraham, go kill Isaac, which seems to end the promise. Like it's, not, it's not just that, well, Sarah can bear you another child. That's not the promise. The promise is Isaac. And so he does this and he says, I know you're not going to withhold him from me. And Hebrews says, the fact that he was going to do this is proof that he believed in the resurrection. Um, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered... No, I'm not going to go. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so, again, this, this is a, an apparent picture of the, the death of Jesus. And then figuratively, Abraham receives Isaac back, but Jesus actually does come back from the dead. Genesis 50, um, Joseph says, bring my bones back from Egypt. Take it back to the promise. Well, why? Why? Why does he care? His bones are dead. Because he believes that God is going to visit the people of Israel and raise him from the dead. It's a symbolic gesture. My bones shouldn't, shouldn't stay here. My bones will come out. And that's all the more poignant when we come to the end of this and we say, remember, Exodus is picturing the deliverance of God's people from death, right? So if Egypt is death, he said, my body will not repose with the dead. It will come out of the dead. Bring me back from the land of the dead. Uh, Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, same kind of thing. Psalm 22, um, I'm poured out like water all my bones. There's this, this picture continually in David's writings where David talks like somebody who is dead, right? You lay me in the dust of death. Like he, he uses over-emphatic language to make him seem like he's dying or dead. Um, he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. It's the same picture that we get that there's this Davidic figure who is going to enter into death. And then, as I said, the entire book of Exodus talks about it. So what we get is kind of hitting the sweet spot of the resurrection, both of an individual and of the entire nation, being sort of hinted at by the Old Testament. So it's there, but it's not overwhelming. It's understandable why people would would kind of miss the, the import of it. And that helps us to see where why it is that God did this particular work. It doesn't come out of left field. It's not there to simply explain um, 
the death of Jesus. It is there because they now have good reason to understand the death of Jesus in light of the Old Testament. Okay, one last thing, and I'm sorry, I know I'm going pretty quick, but we want to talk about eyewitness stuff. Um, eyewitnesses are difficult. So what we found now that we've got DNA evidence is something like 50% of all, um, all murders that are overturned, like retried and overturned, over 50% of them are overturned because eyewitnesses were wrong. They said, I saw that man doing that thing, and DNA came back and said, ah, you were, you were wrong. Um, some of that's lying. Some of that is just because we found out that eyewitnesses are not always the best at reporting what they see. There can be misleading. Um, so, and, and not misleading like purposefully, but just the way that the police might frame their questions or lawyers might frame their questions um, plants information in people's heads. Sometimes I'm sure that they can do this on purpose, but it doesn't always have to be that way, where they will then take that information and, and reuse it. So there's a famous um, study done by, they, they show this like little video of somebody, um, I think it's even a cartoon video of running through a stop sign and, and getting into an accident. And, and one of the, or running through a yield sign or something like that. But the officer, whoever's asking the questions, asked the people, like, well, what did you, did you see the car run through the yield sign? And they're like, yeah, I saw him run through the yield sign, didn't slow down at all. But the point was that it wasn't a yield sign, it was a stop sign, right? So you can, you can kind of be led into remembering things that weren't there. Um, it's pretty easy to do. There's something called schemata, which is different than stigmata. Um, schemata are the ways in which your brain processes stuff, it fills in gaps. So you're always gonna have memory holes. You have things that you don't quite remember. And what your brain does is it takes those gaps in your memory, in, in things that you see around you, and it fills it in with normal scenes. So if something happens in a library that's a bit odd, your brain will fill in the rest of the library scene behind you with normal library stuff. Right? It'll put books on shelves. If, if you're thinking about a bathroom, it will put in normal bathroom stuff. There will be a sink and a, and a stall in the corner and, and just normal stuff that may or may not have actually been there. The, maybe you know, when the, they start to ask you questions about the details, you think you remember it, but truly what you're remembering is just what your brain is saying, this should probably be here, so it's here. Okay? We do this all the time. It's basically just patterns. Your brain just fills in patterns. And details are especially misleading and problematic. People do not remember details very well. Um, they fill in those gaps with their memory. They just don't do it. So when you have police interviewing people on things, they're looking for big things. They're not looking for small details. And people who have really detailed memories of things typically are not very reliable. They're making up a lot of that stuff. Good news is that somebody raising from the dead is not a minor detail, right? It's like, it's like, a, it's like having, it's like questioning whether or not people saw a plane driving into a building, right? When that plane hit the building, people are like, yeah, I remember that. That was a big day. Well, seeing somebody who you knew was dead is kind of a big day. Like that's not a, that's not something that you're just like, well, that was normal. Um, and so there are problems, though, with the eyewitnesses. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all report different things. 
Matthew reports Mary Magdalene and what he calls the, and another Mary. Um, they, they seem to go through an earthquake, although I would argue that that's not a necessary thing to gain from Matthew's writing. You can go and, and read Matthew 28, the beginning of Matthew 28, and you can decide whether or not they experienced the earthquake or whether Matthew is just saying that it happened. Um, the angel rolls back the stone, and then they go and tell the apostles that Jesus wasn't there. In the longer ending of Mark, which is probably not scripture, but is, is good for us to talk about anyway, Mary Magdalene is there as well, same, but now it's Mary. The other Mary is maybe James's mom. He, Mark calls her James' mom, but we don't know if that's the same Mary. And now he adds a third, Salome. And they go, and when they get to the tomb, the tomb has already been opened. Jesus then appears to Mary Magdalene, then to two different disciples who aren't named, and then finally to the apostles. Luke has all of the women who have already been listed. He adds Joanna, and then he adds this collective term, and the others. So we've gone from like two women going to the tomb to now like, like a party of 16 who are just up to go to the bathroom, right? Like if you're with a large group of women, they're just like, hey, let's go. Like that's what's going on here. Now we've got a huge amount of them going to see Jesus. There's an empty tomb, but now there's two men in dazzling white garments there. Luke adds the idea that after the apostles are told, Peter runs back to the tomb, but he only finds a garment there. John has Mary Magdalene alone finding the tomb. She goes back and tells them, Peter and the beloved disciple, who we should just say is John, run and find it empty. But notice here it's just Peter running. Here it's Peter and the beloved disciple running. And then later Jesus appears to Mary and then to others. And so when we come to this, we would say things like, hey, they differ in the state of the tomb. Was the tomb closed? Was it open when they got there? Um, who was present? Which women were present? Right? You can't keep the names of the women clear. We don't know who was actually there. Who was in the tomb? Was the tomb empty? Were there men inside? Was it two angels inside? What was going on? Did Peter run there? Um, if he did, why didn't Matthew record it? Did he go there alone? You know, uh, all these things. However, but it's not hard to see that this can demonstrate the veracity of the accounts. Women were present. They did see an empty tomb, maybe an angel or two, right? So we'll get to how we, the numbering discrepancies are not hard to figure out, but, but they saw an angel or two. And the apostles are told, um, because the women go back and tell them, Peter and John both run there. And later, Jesus appears to Mary and then the rest. You might say, well, what about the differences? And here's the point. Not everyone needs mentioning. The idea that only Peter is mentioned as running to the tomb and not Peter and John doesn't make the fact that Luke says Peter ran to the tomb false. There's no reason for Luke to have to mention every blessed person and what they did on that day. There's no mentioning of what Thomas did on that day. There's no mentioning of where Thomas is, right? Like, this is not a modern history. They don't need to mention every single detail. They are only mentioning the details that they care about. And for Luke, he just cared that Peter went. John got there late anyways. Now, John might care because it gives eyewitness testimony, firsthand eyewitness testimony, but nevertheless. The same thing with the women. Why did Matthew not include the rest of the women? I don't know. Why did he have to? Does it make a difference? Like, I don't know. Um, and not every place is given. Not everything happens in a precise linear time, and not every event is given place. It's not a modern history. It's not written like it. They are free to pick and choose. There's nothing that is actually contradictory in any of the resurrection appearance counts. And what's more, what's more, 
and supports the idea that these were independent witnesses, right? That they're not, they're not getting together and saying, okay, you know, we did this bad thing. We're going to lie about this. We need to get our stories straight, right? When people get their stories straight, typically they are, they are coming together and they're getting every single detail on the same page, on the same, so they can't have any contradictions. And they just clearly didn't do this. They differ in details that they want to mention. Matthew didn't want to mention some. Luke didn't want to mention others. It doesn't really matter. Um, they don't appear to be collaborating together. It's not like they all got together and said, hey, here's what we're going to say, and we can't deviate from the party line. They were just, they were mentioning what they knew. And it's important to say that the New Testament didn't tamper with it after the fact. Like, no one came to these these resurrection appearances, the resurrection is so terribly important, and say, one, we can't have women seeing it first because they're, they're not even allowed to witness and testify to anything in court. So let's get rid of that. Let's just have very detailed accounts of what Peter and John might have seen, and two witnesses establish the truth of the thing, and, and we'll just keep it with that. They, they are given these four semi distinct reports of what happens in the resurrection, and they, they just don't touch it. They don't change it. They don't tamper with it. The New Testament just leaves them the way they are. And so it seems like all of this demonstrates the veracity of the accounts. There's enough similarity to say that they're talking about the same thing, but there's enough dissimilarity to say these are independent accounts of one another. Like Matthew is getting his information from someplace different than Luke is, and John's completely different yet. All right, so the resurrection is necessary and important to believe and affirm. And we just, we can't, we can't be these yahoos that say like, the miracles don't matter, and especially the miracle of Jesus. It's all about spiritual truth anyways. Get out of here with that stuff. That's not, that's not what we believe. It's not what the early church believed. It is necessary and important to believe and affirm it. It's well witnessed to and believable, right? There is, so we can, we can go back to David Hume and we can say, Dave, let's, let's use your little rubric, okay? It is harder to believe that the apostles would make it up than it is to believe that it happened. I think that that's just where we land. And, and the idea that it made almost all of their lives harder is incredibly important. Mass hallucinations, we have no evidence that anything like that has ever happened. No evidence. And on top of that, that means that they must have been lying, but there's just no reason for us to think that they would have been lying. So it seems like it's very, very believable. And it has occurred. So we want to say, yay, the, the resurrection is true. What the apostles have preached and said is right and good. Uh, we have new life in Jesus Christ. Everything that then flies from that and comes through it is, is good and right and true for us. We believe it, and it is ours. So, all right. Sorry, I did get through that almost in time. Almost in time. Uh, any questions or any points anyone wants to make? We've got a little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have you don't have any of them recanting. Yeah. 
right? And, and that would have been an important little bit that certainly would have been recorded either, either by the hands of the Jews or by the hands of the Romans when they were trying to put down like, oh, he recanted. Because the Romans, if you recanted, they, they might have just stopped the whole persecution thing. They're pretty good about that, right? Um, but yeah, we have no evidence of that. All, the only evidence we have, we don't have evidence for all of the apostles' death, but the ones we do know of, they, you know, Judas kills himself, the rest of the apostles are just firm to the end. They, none of them, we have no one in the New Testament who claims to see Jesus. We have no evidence of any of, anyone who claimed to see Jesus resurrected from the dead, wavering later in life and saying, no, we made the whole thing up. There's no evidence for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Having the veil before their, their eyes, yeah. Yeah. Well, and not, not just that, but honestly, the, the entirety of the account with Isaac is also pretty spectacular to overlook. Um, I mean, the the Christian tradition of Jesus right away being the Son of God with all the implications that that has. Um, the, slaughtering of Isaac's a, the slaughtering of Isaac is a very weird thing. The fact that the Lord asks him to do it, but then doesn't make him go through with it. It's a very strange thing, but that's easily explained in Christian terms. Like, it wasn't Isaac, it was Isaac's greater son who was going to be taken that way. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of it. You, you, once, once you get your glasses on and you can, see, you can see correctly, right, it all makes sense. And otherwise, it's just, it's just befuddled and smeared and no good. So and praise God. That's why we also need a miracle-working God to convert us to see these things truly. Yeah. Any other comments? Yeah, the, well, yeah. Okay, so next week we're going to be talking about the problem of evil, and um, we're going to be, that's going to be a lot more difficult even than, than this was, so um, put on your thinking caps for that. But uh, let's pray as our children are anxiously awaiting to get in. They've got like three foreheads pressed against the, the window. Uh, they're backed off a little bit. If only everybody was that excited to get in here. Amen. <laughs> let's, let's pray.
Father, we are thankful for your goodness and your kindness to us. You are a wonderful and merciful Savior for your people. You have demonstrated your goodness and your love for us by raising Jesus from the dead. After he has paid for our sins, um, you have accepted that payment in full. We are freed, therefore, from the, the penalty that we owed before you. We are grateful, Father, for your kindness and grace to us in that. We pray that um, this time of thinking of the, the resurrection of Jesus is helpful, that it will encourage us um, not only to know better how to handle these things when, when we are questioned by the outside world, but even to encourage us to stand firm in the faith that Jesus has indeed been risen from the grave. He is risen indeed, and we can proclaim that loudly, boldly, with assurance and with, with all, all the knowledge that we can muster, all the reasoning and, and thoughts that we can give to it, all of it point in the same direction, that our Jesus has been raised from the dead by your good hand. We're thankful that, um, that you have not left us simply to accept these things, but you have given, given marvelous proof and help and aid to us, um, not only through the Spirit, but, but simply through our own, own logic and minds. We're grateful that you have given us these things. We pray for our worship. We pray for our people. We ask for your blessings to be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.